بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله This is if I'm not mistaken the fifth lesson for module five for so five out of five and module five of course being that it's about salat it, a lot of it is familiar to us with some of the details that maybe we have learned uh, that maybe we forgot about and maybe there's some things that uh, we've never encountered before uh, we still have a few more sessions for this module 5 on Salat and so far we've learned all of the things that are Fardain that we have to know that lead up to the Salat and prepare us for the Salat so we talked about the conditions for the obligation of the prayer meaning what are those things that have to be in place for Salat to even be obligatory Salat is not obligatory on a person who is only two years old because they're missing one of the conditions. Uh, a non-Muslim, they are missing one of the conditions. So we mentioned the shurutul wujub, the conditions of obligation, Islam, maturity, and sanity. So a person who is majnoon, um, whatever we want to call that, that person obviously is not ob obliged to offer salat. We then talked about the causes for the obligation of prayer. What is, it's actually one cause, that cause that when it's in place, the prayer becomes obligatory. And that is one thing and one thing only, dukhulul waqt, when the time enters. So as we said last week, we just prayed maghrib, is the next Isha obligatory on us right now? No, it's not because the time hasn't come yet. When the time comes, it is obligatory on us to pray that prayer. Whether we pray it right in the beginning when it comes in or whether we wait a couple of hours, regardless, it is obligatory when the time comes, not before. And then after talking about those two things, we looked at what leads up to the prayer, namely the adhan and the iqama. And we mentioned that it is recommended for people to call the adhan and the iqama for the prayers they offer, whether these are in the masjid or alone at home. After that, we talked about the conditions of the prayer, namely the conditions for the validity of prayer meaning those things that have to be in place for the prayer to be valid in the first place. So the conditions we talked about last week, and these conditions are being in a state of ritual purity, tahara, from both major and minor impurity. So basically the person uh, is in wudu uh, and they have that. Number two, they have to be free of any physical filth. And by filth, we always mean the 
technical meaning of that in Sharia, which is najasa, not just dirt or grime. So physical filth here meaning ritual impurities on one's garments, body, or place of prayer, i.e. where the limbs touch. The person also has to cover the awrah, that's a condition for the prayer. If that condition is missing, depending on the circumstance, the prayer would not be valid. Once the awrah is covered and they're ready to pray, the time has come in, they now have to determine the qibla, the direction they face, and they have to face that direction. Now how exact do you have to be when you are here in North America? What direction should you be facing? Northeast. What if you were to look on your Qibla app and you see the arrows pointing this way, but your, your body, your chest face slightly this way to the, to the left? Would that make your prayer invalid? No, you, you have some certain degree of deviation you're allowed when you're really far away. Now, the closer you are to the Kaaba, of course, the less deviation is allowed. And a person who is praying at the Kaaba has to be very careful that when they're facing it, they're not facing it in such a way that their body would go outside of the vicinity of the Kaaba if you drew a straight line. It has to still be where if you drew a straight line from their body, from their chest, the line would connect to the physical structure of the Kaaba, not off to the side. And one simply faces the, 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 the Kaaba in that manner when they're close. So you're facing the Qibla, the awrah is covered, you have wudu, the time has come for the prayer. You now have the, the niyyah, the intention. And we said the intention is mainly for the purpose of distinguishing between different acts of worship. So a niyyah for salat is important because you have to distinguish. Is this the niyyah? Am I praying Maghrib or am I praying Isha? If a person prays, let's say they pray, and after their salams you ask them, what did you just pray? And they go, uh, hmm, hmm, yeah, what did I pray? And it takes them about 10 seconds. Oh, yeah, I prayed Isha. What's the ruling on that? Tell them to go back and pray over again. Because they took so long, it shows that the niyyah wasn't really there. But what if you ask them and they say, well, yeah, Isha, obviously. They're just stating what was already there. So there's no repeat on them because they had the niyyah. And this is important, especially for kids, you know. You're training them to pray. Sometimes you tell them, go pray. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you go, they go pray and you ask them, what did you pray? Uh, and it's Maghrib time or something. So you, you have to train them that way. to distinguish between the prayers by the niyyah. After the niyyah is formed, there is that opening takbir. And we said that you don't have to worry too much about the coinciding, you don't be obsessive about it. But the idea is that you know what you're praying, you have that intention, and forming that intention, you then utter the takbir. And there's not a large gap between the niyyah and the takbir. And if there's a gap, it has to be related to what you're doing in the salat, 
or something connected to salat like dhikr and the like or dua before you begin so on and so forth if you have the niyyah and the takbir and between it is something not related to the prayer is that okay is that accepted no, no. it has to be related to the prayer so if you make the niyyah for dhuhr at dhuhr time and as you're making the niyyah you may have even called the iqama and then the oven goes off and you got to go check the oven turn it off take the thing out of the oven that's not related to salat when you go back you have to make the niyyah again you don't you, so basically that comes into your heart yes dhuhr okay right so you don't have to say it out loud um, and it's something very easy in fact it's actually hard not to do to have if you know what you're doing if you're aware like if you're walking down the hall to go to the bathroom to make wudu and someone stops you in the hall and they say well what are you doing I'm walking down the hall to go to the bathroom to make wudu why because it's lower time so anybody who knows what they're doing has a niya based on what they're doing beforehand. It's just to distinguish it from other mundane actions, uh, mundane actions or to distinguish one act of worship from another. Dhuhr between Asr or a Nafil versus a Fard and so on. So you have all of these things in place. You got the wudu, everything, the body is clean, the body, the place of prayer, the garments, awrah is covered, you're facing the qibla, it's time for the salat, you have the niyyah, you utter the takbir, now you have the obligations to do inside of the salat. And that's what we were covering last week, but we didn't get to finish it. So inshallah we're going to cover those pillars and then the obligations, hopefully we'll finish all of them tonight. And then next week, it's, we're going through the sunan, those uh, recommended actions within the salat. So we're now looking at the, the fiqh of salat according to Imam Abu Hanifa and his school. And we're looking at the pillars, the arkan of salat. What is the difference between a condition and a pillar? We said last week that the condition, the shart, is outside of the salat itself whereas the pillar is inside of the salat itself so is wudu salat no is facing the qibla salat no is having a clean place of prayer salat no but those are all conditions for the validity of the salat but then there are things you have to do while in the salat after you've entered it by means of the takbiratu tahrima the opening Allahu Akbar uh, and as a quiz in the Hanafi school where should you raise your hands to ideally right in the Hanafi school it's up here there is a view from the hadith to raise it up to here both are fine but this is the preferred way and we said that it shouldn't be the half-hearted kind of flapping way where it's like this it should be up okay so now you have the pillars We last week we looked at this list of six things and we I think we covered the first two and then we ran out of time. So according we have the first one here is the takbir to tahrima, the opening takbir. 
But didn't we just say a, a second ago that that's a condition? Why is it here? Well, this is because within the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, there was a difference between the, the, the scholars and the madhab. According to Imam Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani, the takbiratul tahrima is inside of the salat and therefore a pillar. According to Imam Abu Hanifa and Abu Yusuf, it's a condition and it's something by which one enters the salat itself. So for us, you know, it's just a debate between scholars. It's kind of a technicality. It doesn't really matter for us because either way you have to do it. The second pillar is qiyam, standing for the one who was capable except for the voluntary prayers. And we went through that in some detail. There's recitation of the Qur'an, even if only one verse in any two rak'ahs of the obligatory prayer. This is a bit confusing because people read this and they think, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to read Al-Fatiha? What's going on here? And there's a reason why it's listed this way. And in all rak'ahs of witr and voluntary prayers, unless one is praying behind an imam, since there is no recitation for the one behind an imam. We'll go over that inshallah. Then the fourth pillar is the bowing, ruku'ah. Then number five, prostration, sajda or sujood, with one's forehead, both hands, both knees, and the bottom of the toes of both feet. And the last pillar is the final sitting for at least the length of the tashahud. So these are the pillars. When you look at the pillars and compare them to the wajibat, the obligations, it gets a little confusing because in the Hanafi school they arrange them in this way because of the, uh, we could say, the epistemological authority of one over the other, as we'll see. But when you put it all together, we, we do all of these things, okay? So let's just go to these one by one. We're not covering number one. We'll go straight to number two, which is Qiyam. We spoke about this last week and we said that this is for the one who is physically capable of standing up. If the person is incapable of standing up uh, or they find it very difficult, meaning they can, but it really causes them a lot of pain that distracts them from the prayer. For that person, they can pray sitting, but ideally, if they can, they should go back to the normal rukur and sujood if they're able. This would mean a person who, you know, maybe they have an injury that makes it really hard to stand, and that's all. If they were sitting in a chair, they're okay. And they're also able to go into rukur and sujood without a problem. If they can do that, that's ideal. It, but most of the time, people who have injuries uh, or other ailments and they can't stand, they also have a difficult time getting into those other positions. So rukur and sujood and getting up from them becomes hard. So they would do it in the chair or just uh, sitting completely on the ground. A person can pray the voluntary prayer sitting, although doing so without an excuse entails half the reward. So let's say a person is uh, elderly and they're frail. It's very hard for them to stand and to do the prayer fully. For them, if they sit down and offer their nafal voluntary prayer, they get full reward. Because Allah Ta'ala knows, if they had the strength to do it, they would do it. But they don't. 
So they are ma'adhur, they have an excuse. But maybe, you know, maybe you're just tired, just feeling a little lazy. You're capable of doing it, but you're feeling lazy. So you decide, you know, I don't want to miss out the sunnah, but I'm feeling really lazy. So I'm going to sit on the floor. I'm going to, you know, make my taslim from the fadl and just sit here and just pray right here. You could do that, but because you're able to stand up, you actually get half of the reward that you would normally have if you were getting up and praying normally. The only exception to this is one sunnah prayer. What is that sunnah prayer? The one before fajr. That one is so highly emphasized in the sunnah, so recommended that they say it has to be performed standing, meaning it's not like the others where the option is there even if the reward is decreased, no. The only reason you would pray the sunnahs of Fajr sitting is if you're unable, just as you would the Farad if you were unable. So that's the Qiyam, pretty basic. And uh, I think this is where we left off last week, the issue of the recitation. Now we all know that when we pray, we have to read Surah Al-Fatiha uh, at least. And we're talking about a person praying by themselves right now. They have to read Al-Fatiha. So why is it they say that a pillar of the prayer is recitation of the Qur'an even if only one verse in any two rak'ahs of the obligatory prayer? So what they mean here is that if we go back to module 2, in module 2 we were talking about a somewhat complex issue of the way the different ulama would analyze the text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah in terms of their evidentiary strength or their epistemological strength. And we said that in the methodology, the usul of Imam Abu Hanifa, they would look, at, well, it's also outside of them, but here particularly, you would have texts that are either qat'i or dhanni, meaning they're, they're either clear-cut or they are probabilistic, dhanni. And that is either in the case of transmission or what it's indicating of meanings. So you go back to module 2 and read up on that. Something that is qat'i al-thubut or qat'i al-dilala or dhanni al-thubut and dhanni al-dilala. And these can be mixed in different ways. So in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, what is qat'i in thubut and dilala? What is clear cut both in its transmission in revelation and its indication is faqra'u ma tayassara min al-Qur'an. The verse where Allah says, read uh, what is easy of the Qur'an. So that establishes the fardiyya, the the fard nature of reciting uh, something of the Qur'an in Salat. As far as reading Al-Fatiha goes, that is a wajib of the Salat, but in its uh, evidentiary value, it is not at the same level. Meaning it is, it is uh, you could say, qat'i al-thubut dhanni al-dilala. So it's a degree lower, it's still wajib, it's just compared to the other verse. It's a little complicated. That's why they do it. 
And it, were it not for the fact that this is how they structure it in the books, I wouldn't teach it this way. I would just say, yeah, read the Fatiha. Done. But we have to understand according, on their own terms. What this means is that you have to be reciting and you have to also be reciting the Qur'an while standing, meaning you're not reciting the Qur'an in ruku' or sujood or in jalsa when sitting. You're reciting it in the qiyam. And you're, you, when reciting it, you have to be able to hear yourself. And someone had asked last week for some clarification about that. And we said it is to distinguish between the internal dialogue where your lips may be moving but you're not actually producing sound but you're all but you're also reading the verses in your heart like right now think of the first couple of verses in surah al-fatiha just just think of them in your head okay now think of them while moving your mouth without a sound you're not saying them are you but you're kind of reading them over in your heart if you pray like that you're not actually reciting so you have to make sure that you can hear yourself and when they say you have to hear yourself it means you could hear yourself if you were in a very quiet environment where there's no external noise that would drown out your voice so if you want to test what that might sound like you can go to your basement when no one's home and pray there and recite silently you can hear your voice it doesn't mean that when you're standing in the row in the masjid or anywhere else that you have to go like this some people do that so they're kind of exaggerating it a little bit because they may worry that they're not reading it properly. The idea is that you know if you're reading it at a very low voice and you know if you're just reading it in your heart but not actually saying it. You have to read it. But this is only for the one who is praying by themselves. If you are praying behind an imam in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, you're, the recitation of the imam is considered your recitation. This means that when he begins the salat and reciting the Quran, you are silent from beginning to end. That's it. Now the other madhahib differ. Some of them obligate reading al-Fatiha in the silent rak'ahs, but not in the audible rak'ahs. Some of them obligate reading the Fatiha to oneself in all of the rak'ahs silently even if behind the imam so this is where there's a very significant difference of opinion among the fuqaha but in the Hanafi school this is how it is and it's prohibitively disliked to recite behind the imam including the fatiha uh, in the Hanafi school now we'll, we'll kind of come back to this when we get to the wajibat and talk about fatiha so bowing is another pillar if you don't do ruku' you have missed an ruqan of salat and the bowing or the ruk or ruku' is defined as bending the back to the extent that if you were to extend your arms to your knees they would reach the knees they have this very interesting way of defining it it's something that's very intuitive 
just stand up and lower the top half of your body to the point where your hands reach your knees. That's bowing. Once you can do that, you're in the rukur. But we all come in different shapes and sizes, and people have different types of posture. Some people have very good posture. Some people have bad posture. Some people have lordosis, kyphosis, you name it, all sorts of conditions. We're all different. And people may have a difficult time with their flexibility and getting into an ideal rukur position. But as long as the hands are on the knees and they're in that position, that's good. But there is an ideal. And the ideal is one we should strive for, even if it means working on our flexibility a little bit. We have some hadith which describe that prophetic ideal. And the ideal we have in the hadith found in Bukhari, Abu Dawood, and Al-Hakim, and others. It says the Prophet ﷺ would put his blessed hands on both knees and stretch his fingers across them. He would not place them above his knees. So you may see, you've seen, you see some people where they, they put their hands to the side over on above the kneecaps like this. Like they're gripping the sides of their legs. They're still in the rukur. It's valid, but it's less than ideal. The ideal is that the hands are actually resting on the kneecaps gently with the, the fingers spread out evenly, not tight like this. That's number one. In the second hadith recorded by Ibn Umajah, when the Prophet ﷺ was in rukur, he straightened his blessed back such that if water was poured over his neck, the water would not run down. No one did that, obviously. But they're using that language to describe the straightness of his blessed back when in rukur. So, th th this is one of the things I did in Islamic school like 20 years ago when teaching a bunch of fourth graders about salat. I read this hadith to them and then we did a challenge where they would all line up and get in front of the class and they would go into rukur and we'd try to put a cup of water on their back. We're not pouring it like the hadith says, but we put the water on the back. If they're going too far down, well, the water is going to get on them. It's going to fall forward and splash all over their neck and back of their head. If the rukur is too high, it's just going to spill back on their lower back. And by them seeing that, they were able to correct themselves very quickly and see that this is the ideal. And they're kids, they're flexible enough to do it, you know. So this is an ideal. Uh, and lastly, we have the hadith in Abu Dawood, where the Prophet ﷺ, while bowing, did not rear his head or lower it. So I want you to think about the posture of the head. You know these, uh, you know these puppets, I don't know what you call them, the marionettes, where they have the strings that are going through the, the head and they control them from above the ceiling or whatever. Um, think about if you have this plumb line just kind of straight from the top of your head going straight down. The shape of your head, you don't obsess about this stuff, but if you think about it, if you're going into rukur and you're standing up straight, you're going into rukur. This hadith is saying that he, when in rukur, he's not lifting his neck, his back, his head like this towards his neck, nor is he digging it in. It's just even. Everything is in equilibrium. 
perfect posture and the bowing was perfect. The head was balanced and straight. It was not going up, it was not going down. And these are little things to be aware of because you'll find that the more bodily aware you are in the salat, the more you become aware of the, the, the meanings and concentration in salat. Uh, a part of this journey of developing our presence in salat is having more bodily awareness. How we stand, how is our posture, how we are when we're in rukur, when we're in sujood, to be aware of these things. So this is the ideal. If a person has uh, flexibility issues or other physical issues with their back uh, or, or legs that prevents the f this ideal, it's okay provided that they are in the bowing posture and they strive for that ideal. It just shouldn't be one of laziness where a person is just, you know, just too lazy to bother. You should work at this. So that is the pillar of rukur. After this comes sajda, the prostration. Now obviously there's the rising from that rukur, the second qiyam. But we're going now to, to sajda as the next pillar. It's obligatory to place the following limbs on the ground. Part of the forehead, one hand, one knee, and a part of one toe of either foot. Why are they describing it like this? They're giving us the absolute bare minimum. This is something you have to understand about fiqh. Fiqh, uh, the way we learn law, it's not describing always the ideal or what only applies to pious Muslims. It applies to lazy people and sinful Muslims and all sorts. So here it's just describing the bare minimum for it to be considered a valid sajda. So if the person's got the head kind of tilted slightly, maybe they got one hand here in their pocket and the other hand's on the ground. One knee is somehow, I don't know, somehow lifted up and one foot is over the other. It is less than ideal, of course, but they're still in sajda. They're still in sajda. So that bare minimum, if it was to go less than that, it wouldn't be proper sajda. The prayer would be invalid. So this is not saying that when you go to salat, you should do this. It's just saying, well, it's the bare minimum. The prostration, they say, is not valid unless it bears the weight of the head. What this means, they say, is you cannot make sajda on things like rice, hay, piles of leaves, etc. Now, you hear this and you wonder, well, why would they say that? Who would ever think to make sajda on a pile of rice? But remember, a lot of our fiqh was codified and organized in an agricultural society. The agricultural society was the human norm for millennia, right? It still is the norm for many parts of the world. So if you're a farmer somewhere and you're in a barn and there's a bunch of loose hay, like a little hill of hay, and there's a bunch of animal droppings here on the ground, you don't want to pray there, does that mean you can climb onto this loose sinking pile of hay and pray on it? Not according to the Hanafi school. Because there has to be some solaba, some 
uh, solidity, some, it has to be a fixed kind of place where you're making that sajda. So this means that even if it's soft, but it's a fixed thing, you can make sajda on that. So a mattress would be fine, but not something like rice, which is going to shift and go all over the place, or hay, and so on. So, you know, if anything like this ever happens in your life, please let me know. I would love to hear it. But this is a scenario. Sand. Uh, sand, if the sand is uh, solid, it's, it's fine. I mean, because it's like dirt. So dirt is inevitably like sand. It's going to move and shift. But we're talking about something that, if you compare rice to sand, there's a solidity to sand that's not in rice. Because if you're praying on a big mountain of rice, you're actually going to sink inside of it. But a thing of sand, you're not going to really sink into it. You may, I mean, you'll sink a little bit with your feet. We're talking a few inches. But with rice or with a, a pile of leaves, right, this, it doesn't have a solidity to it. So r sand is obviously fine, but not uh, these loose things. Uh, they also say that placing the, f the place of the forehead cannot be elevated above the place of the feet by more than 25 centimeters, meaning uh, half a dhira, half a, an arm's length, unless there's a crowd in which case one may prostrate on the back of someone offering the same prayer. I love these details because it just really engages the imagination. Um, because the idea of sajda is that the highest part of your body, the head, when standing, is in the lower position. So they had to determine what is the bare minimum for this because there's different you know, the, if, you, if you're in a hilly area and you're making sajda on an incline, you know, your, your, your body is going up a little bit. So they said that if it's so high that it's more than half an arm's length, it's not a proper sajda. Unless you're in a situation where the masjid for the salat is so crowded that in the time of sajda, the only place for your head is... God knows where, on someone's leg or foot or the, the, their back or something. Now, have you ever been in a, in a position where that, it's been that crowded? I see some head shaking. Yeah, in, in the rawda for sure. For ha in hajj in some places, yes. It will be like that. So if you're, and there's hadith about this happening with sahaba too, where they end up making sajda and the, they're actually on <laughs> the person's the back of their leg or something because of the, the intense crowding. Uh, and this is fine because what else are you going to do? Uh, lastly, they say the prostration should be with both the rigid portion of the nose and the forehead and not restricted to the nose only unless there's an injury to the forehead. If you ever watch kids when they're really young and praying, you'll always see them they're, they'll often make the sajda and they're just kind of on their nose or they go between the forehead and the nose. Uh, it, you know, some adults do this too. The idea is that prostration has to encompass the solid portion of the nose as well as the forehead. So basically this area. If it's just the nose, that would only be allowed if there's some kind of injury. So that is sajda. And the last pillar is the final sitting for at least the length of the tashahud. 
So here, notice they're not saying the reading of the tashahud. They're saying at least sitting for the length of time it takes to read the tashahud. So two different things here. Now the tashahud is of course from the wajibat. It's obligatory. Thing. You have to do them. But the final sitting is distinct from the tashahud. So they say that this means the shortest time you can sit in the last part of your salat is the amount of time it takes to read the tashahud with proper pronunciation. So you know, that will vary perhaps from person to person, but the average time. And the reasoning for this is because they argue that the Prophet ﷺ linked the completion of the salat to the reading of the tashahud. And the tashahud is only read in the sitting. So the completion of the salat is therefore linked to the sitting. So this is basically a logical argument. If the salat is only concluded by tashahud, and tashahud is only said while sitting, this means that salat, one of the pillars, is that final sitting. Even though it's not mentioning the tashahud here, it's just talking about the length of time to say it. So this is very obvious. We all know that we have to sit, but these are some of the finer details they give. So remember, the conditions are outside of the salat, external to the prayer. The arkan that we just covered are within the prayer. And after the arkan come the wajibat, which are also in the prayer. So, so far we've learned the conditions for the obligation, Islam, sanity, maturity, the cause for the obligation, the entrance of time, and the conditions for the validity of prayer, uh, covering the awrah, facing the qibla, the niyyah, and so on. And we learned just now the pillars of the prayer. Now, both the conditions, the shurut, and the pillars we just covered are fard. So if a person omits any of them, their prayer is invalid. If they don't face the qibla, it's invalid, without an excuse. If there's no niyyah, it's invalid. If they don't have wudu, it's invalid. Those are conditions. If they don't stand and they don't have an excuse, it's invalid. If they don't do rukur or sujood, it's invalid. So the condition is outside of the salat, pillar is inside of the salat. And this is what we've covered so far. Now we've covered the conditions and the pillars, now we get to the wajibat, the obligatory things in prayer. And you like this picture, don't you? Yes. Is his, uh, is his sajda valid in there? Well, Salah is not even wajib on him to begin with, so it is what it is. He's kind of in a rukur sajda hybrid. Yeah, he's very flexible, mashallah. Okay. So the obligations of prayer. Now, when we say wajib in the Hanafi school, you have to understand that in the Hanafi school, wajib is different from fard. Someone asked me the distinction last week, and whenever someone asks me this question, it's, it's actually difficult to answer because it requires a bit of unpacking. Uh, this, the whole issue of qatri and dhanni between w transmission and, and meaning or indication. But basically, 
in the the usuli epistemology within the Hanafi school you have qat'i as a level of obligatory and then you have wajib as another level of obligatory both of them are obligatory both of them are necessary but epistemologically meaning the the evidence to support one is much stronger than the other even though both of them are strong so I, I don't really want to go through all of the details regarding that but definitely review module 2 when we talked about it and one of the reasons why we talked about it in module 2 is because we we're going to encounter it here and there in the fiqh so the wajibat are also they're like pillars it's just that the evidence used in support of them from the Quran and the Sunnah don't have the same uh, level of certitude and strength as we find in the Arkan. But they're still very, very strong. And they are uh, a number of things. And some of the books mention like 50 things, but it's all, they mix different things together. Now, if a person intentionally leaves something that is wajib in the prayer, that is a sinful act. And if they leave it on purpose, they have to repeat the prayer. If a person leaves something wajib out of forgetfulness, however, their prayer is not invalidated as long as they do the prostrations of forgetfulness, sajdatu sahu, which we'll talk about later. So the ulama mention a very beautiful point. They look at the salat as a collection of things of practices and actions and sayings each of which enhances the other so they say that the wajibat the obligations of prayer are to perfect and enhance the fard aspects of prayer so the fard is at the top of the pyramid the wajibat are right underneath and they enhance and perfect whatever may be lacking in the fard and then the sunnas are perfecting and enhancing the wajibat. So that will be the third level. And then you have the adab or the, the etiquettes of the prayer. And that will be at the bottom of the pyramid. And those things beautify and enhance the sunan of the prayer. So the adab enhance and perfect the sunan. The sunan enhance and perfect the wajibat. And the wajibat enhance and perfect the fard. So this is how it works. What are they? We'll cover them tonight, inshallah. Uh, or maybe not. We'll see. Um, some of these are pretty straightforward. To say the words Allahu Akbar to begin each prayer. You have to. Number two, to recite the Fatiha as well as a chapter or three verses after it. Now, we know that we have to recite Al-Fatiha. In the Hanafi school, you also have to recite a chapter of the Qur'an after the Fatiha or three verses at least. And the reason for this is because in the Hanafi school, they mention that Allah Ta'ala challenged the disbelievers to produce something, a chapter, a surah, the like thereof, right? 
فَأْتُوا بِسُورَةٍ بِمِثْلِ Bring a chapter like it. And the shortest chapter of the Qur'an consists of how many verses? Three. Therefore, the mafhum of the Qur'an in the Qur'an or a surah is three verses minimum or something that has three or more. So this is why they would say three is a minimum and not less. So this is a very logical way of uh, determining that when you recite after the Fatiha, it should be at least three verses or more, or a surah. And to recite, the, and that's number two. The third obligation is to recite the Fatiha as well as a chapter or three verses after it in the first two rak'ahs of the prayer. And to perform the prostration with most of the forehead and the hard part of the nose. So there's, there's some repetition here, but there's the bare minimum part of sajda, and then there's the wajib aspect of sajda. Then to perform the second prostration before moving on to the other parts of the prayer. So if a person's in the first sajda and they get straight up on purpose, what have they omitted? The second sajda. So the second sajda is a wajib. If you omit that on purpose, it's sinful. The person has to repeat their prayer if they did that on purpose. And if they forgot, they have to make the sajda of prost the prostration of forgetfulness. Okay? And number six is tuma'anina, to be still for at least a moment in every integral of the prayer. This is defined as the amount of time it takes to say subhanallah once. That's the bare minimum time. So each integral means bowing, prostration, standing after bowing, and the sitting between prostrations. All right, this is a very important issue to talk about. The, the issue of the speed salat. You all know what I'm talking about. The person who speeds through the prayer, they go into rukur and they, they rise right back up and then they're in sajda for just a moment and then they're sitting, then they're back in sajda and then they're back up. They're speedy Gonzales in the salat. They're rushing through it. They're lacking this tranquility that is required as a obligation for the prayer. But we have to define the bare minimum here and the ideal. So the stillness is what is required. And when we say stillness, it means that the person cannot be in constant movement. So this means if the person is standing, they go into sajda and there's, their, their body doesn't actually stop moving. As soon as they're there, they're back up. They're in constant movement, like, a, like some kind of yoga flow, right? That is not stillness. There has to be a pause within each posture. The shortest duration of the pause is the time it takes to say, Subhanallah. That's at least a second. If the person is in constant movement, that is not the stillness. And that means they are missing this obligation. We have a hadith, a very famous hadith, called uh, the hadith, uh, hadithu, uh, من أساء في صلاته أو حديث مسيء صلاته 
the person, the hadith of the person who prayed badly. Uh, and this hadith mentions a person in the masjid praying a nafil prayer, presumably, maybe an obligatory prayer, I'm not 100% sure. And after he finishes the prayer, the Prophet ﷺ sees him and he says, He says, go back and pray for you have not prayed. And the man goes back and he prays exactly as he did the first time. He finishes his prayer and the Prophet ﷺ says, Go back and pray for you have not prayed. This happens a second time and a third time. And finally he says, Ya Rasulullah, this is, this is all I know. And the Prophet ﷺ then explains the manner of the prayer, describing the, the bare minimum, the skeleton, you, if you will, of the salat, which is qiyam, reciting Qur'an, and then bowing, and then standing, and then sajda, all of these things. But in that hadith, he says, وسلم, place your palms on your knees, space your fingers out, and remain like that until every limb takes its proper place. That means settlement, right? That the bones, everything is settled, there's stillness, right? In another hadith, recorded by Imam Ahmad, Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu says, my Khalil, my intimate friend, forbade me from pecking in my prayer like a rooster, from looking around like a fox, and from squatting like a monkey. So we're forbidden from imitating the animals in our salat. So the pecking of the rooster in salat is the one who's going boop, 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 like this in rukur or sujood. The fox is very obvious. One, one time there was a person after Jumrah, it wasn't here, but somewhere, they were in salat. You know, they're just kind of sitting here like this. You don't know if they're praying or they're just, you know, resting their arms. And they're looking around like this. I don't think they're praying. So I'm about to move in front of them. And right as I'm walking, they go into rukur. <laughs> and this is a person who is like the fox. They're looking here and there. Uh, so, I mean, there's looking with your head not moving. And then there's looking with the head. Uh, both are blameworthy, but one is worse than the other. Uh, lastly, we have the hadith in Tabarani and Al-Hakim where it is reported that the Prophet ﷺ said the worst thief among people is the one who steals from his salat. And he was asked, how does one steal from his salat? And he said, he does not complete his bowing or prostration. So he is telling the Sahaba this because this was an issue even back then and people had to be educated. And so you have the bare minimum, the time it takes to say SubhanAllah. Is that the ideal? No, the ideal is the time it takes to say SubhanAllah or Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la three times or five times or, and so on. That's the bare minimum. But basically you have to make sure that there's stillness in each of the posture, there's a pause. If it's continuous, they, you, you've left a, a, an obligation. All right, we, we actually have quite a lot here. Uh, some of these are pretty simple though. Uh, the first sitting, another obligation. The first sitting, 
after the first two rak'ahs in a three or four rak'ah prayer for the length of time to recite the tashahud therein. So the al-jalsatul ula, the first sitting when you're in tashahud, uh, which is after two or after three, right? Depending on the prayer. Number eight, to recite the entire tashahud in both sittings. And omitting a part of it is like omitting all of it, which would require a prostration of forgetfulness if done by accident or being sinful if done on purpose. This means that you have to make sure you've memorized the tashahud. And there's different versions from different hadith narrations, but one should memorize the tashahud and say it properly. After that is to rise to the third rak'ah, after that tashahud, without any delay after reciting the tashahud. So they say that if a person is uh, remaining longer after their tashahud out of forgetfulness, say they, you know, they're in the second, they're the first sitting of the, of the, of the salat, they do the tashahud and then they just get distracted for whatever reason, they're just daydreaming. If they do that out of forgetfulness, for the amount of time it takes to perform a pillar, like reading the Fatiha or so, or bowing or so on, they have to offer the two prostrations of forgetfulness. So when you finish the tashahud, you don't just sit there, you get right back up, you keep it going. And number 10, to recite the Qur'an aloud, jahran, audibly, in Fajr, and the first two rak'ahs of Maghrib and Isha, even if they are makeup prayers and allowed here means that not that you hear them only it means they're heard by others uh, and this is presuming you're leading others because the fuqaha and the Hanafi school say that if you're praying by yourself you are your own imam so you're not you don't have to recite such that people behind you could hear as long as you recite where you can hear that's that's all that you need to do uh, the eleventh thing is to recite the Qur'an in the other rak'ahs silently to the extent that one can hear himself. Again, if you're in a silent room, right? You could at least hear yourself in that room. And lastly, to say the word as-salam twice when ending the prayer, each one being an obligation. Adding alaykum wa rahmatullah is a sunnah. So this, mean, this means if someone was to end the prayer by going as-salam, as-salam, they have fulfilled the obligation. But they have omitted a sunnah, which is to say as-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. At least in the Hanafi school. In the Maliki school, what do we do? As-salamu alaykum. That's it. That's, that's the Maliki school. Just once on one side. Because the Prophet ﷺ says that the salat is exited with taslim. He didn't say taslim attain. So that's their evidence. Alright. So alhamdulillah we covered it. I want you to look at this picture here. Um, I mean there's a few people. Some of them may be familiar to you. That's not really the point of the picture. Uh, the point of the picture is I wanted you to look at it and tell me if you... What stands out? Ah, oh, the hands. You see different hand positions, don't you? Uh, yeah, so I put that picture there on purpose because in our next class, 
We just finished talking about the external conditions for Salat, the pillars of Salat, and the obligations of Salat. So next is the Sunan, those things that are recommended in the Salat, which are not things that will invalidate the prayer if not done. They don't have the same degree. They are Sunan. And we're go- this, this is going to be the, 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 hopefully all of the classes are, I hope, I, and I pray they are enlightening. But I think the next class will be especially enlightening because we're dealing with the Sunan of Salat. This means we're going to talk about the diversity of our fiqh traditions in Islam. And we'll look at those areas where there are differences in the prayer. Like why do... Why do some people put their hands here versus here versus here uh, or for women here or here for, for, for men or women? Uh, is this a valid way to put your hands? We'll look at the issue of raising the hands before and after Rukur versus not raising the hands. Saying Amin out loud or silently. Should you, should you not? Should we fight over it? We'll look at the prayer postures and how they're slightly different between men and women in the Hanafi school. We'll look at why that is and the basis for it from within the fiqh of the Sahaba and the Tabi'un. And then we'll look at the position of the feet in Salat and all of that and uh, the tashahud and the finger business and when do you raise it and how do you raise it and how fast and how slow We'll look at all of those issues insha'Allah because all of those are within the area of the sunan of prayer. None of those are from the obligations of prayer, much less the the arkan of prayer. So this is where you'll get to know, you know, where does this come from? Uh, Because we're teaching according to the Hanafi school. So we're going to teach that while also looking at those differences. Where do they come from? Why are they there? so we can have an appreciation for these valid differences, all of which are supported according to different madhahib with their own usul. Alhamdulillah. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So we have a couple of minutes. So if there's any questions. You just listen, yeah. When the iqamah is called, there's no, there's no repeating after the, the one calling it. Yeah. yeah. Just the adhan. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying if you um, forget to stand up after the shahu, you don't have to do um, forgetfulness such that the end is brief? If it's brief, like say you do the tashahud, and for whatever reason, there's a slight delay between your completion of it and your standing for the third rakah. If that space of time is uh, long enough for you to read al-Fatiha, for instance, or your athkar when you're in rukur or so on, then that would be considered a long delay in the madhab. So they would say that's long enough where you would need to make the prostration of forgetfulness. 
But if, say it's a few seconds. What if you're like, whoops, this is only the second zikah, I still have to finish the third zikah, this is like, that's Yeah, if it's a brief moment like that and you just get up, it's not going to affect the validity. The issue here is because there's no, obviously there's no hadith that says it has to be this long or that short. They're trying to understand what, is, what constitutes a long time. And in the context of prayer, how are you measuring the different movements? You're measuring them through this rukun and this wajib. So how long are each of those taking? So they're saying that if you're staying so, uh, in the sitting position long enough for one of those to be done, that's considered too long. But if it's less than the amount of time it takes to do one of those things, it's not too long. So if you get back up in time for that, you can continue without any prostration of forgetfulness. Yeah. Um, this is one of those things. It's a, probably a rare occurrence, right? So it, it's really, it, this is again one of those examples where uh, there's no hard and fast rule for what determines long and short. Is contextual, and in here it's in the context of the postures of the prayer them itself, between each of them and how long they take. So that's a relative matter, right? So how long does it take for a person to read al-Fatiha? Could be thirty seconds, could be forty-five seconds, could be a minute, uh, probably not a minute, but yeah, that's the guideline. Uh, it's not because you forgot which rakah you're on. It's just a, a, a delay after the tashahud of just sitting there and not doing anything. It could be the person's just, they're falling, they're even dozing off and they just kind of come back. Or they're daydreaming, they're not focusing. And maybe they know exactly what to do and they're aware that they have to go up for the third rakah. Uh, it's not like they're confused. If they're confused, if they're doing the tashahud for the second rakah or the third or fourth depending on the prayer again if that time becomes long and they're doing the mathematical equation in their head to figure out where they are uh, if it goes for so long that a pillar could be performed like reading a fat, reading fatiha or, uh, reading quran or doing the, the sajda and the ruku and all that they say you need to do the, the prostration of forgetfulness that's a pretty strict ruling, if you ask me. Uh, and this is what you find in these schools. There's a lot of areas where they're very lenient, and there's areas that are quite strict. And where one madhab is very strict on the issue, another is very lenient. And where the other one's very lenient, the other one's very strict. So, you know, if a person is played with waswasa, what they would do is just take an alternative view within the school that gives them a scope for dealing with the issue if it's a recurring problem, right? Um, the problem with uh, studying fiqh is sometimes people are dealing with forgetfulness or they're plagued with misgivings, waswasa. Um, they have a tendency to OCD in certain issues. And sometimes fiqh can uh, increase that tendency. If a person is struggling with those kinds of issues and it's a recurring problem, they should consult with a scholar about the particular problem so they could teach them in the fiqh the view, a, a, an alternative view within the school which is more lenient that would alleviate that, that misgiving. So it, even if it happens in the future, they're not going to 
constantly think they need to make the two prostrations of forgetfulness or that their prayer is always deficient, right? I'm trying to, in, to imagine what that would be like. The first answer could have been that the, it's the condition before the prayer, so the matter of getting inside the prayer and after it doesn't come into play, right? Because Niyya is the condition. Yeah, because internally they form the Niyya and they utter the Takbir. Uh, and internally, while in Salah, they know that they're in Salat. So they don't think that they're just standing there, just standing randomly. So the, the, the niyyah was already formed and they know that they're in salat. If they are confused about what prayer it is, where, oh, am I praying dhuhr or asr? I can't remember. This can be a problem. But they just need to re reaffirm their niyyah in the beginning before they pray. And in this case, it may be advisable for them in particular to utter the niyyah out loud. That is a valid thing to do in the Hanafi school, like in the Shafi school. Uh, it's not a universally uh, uh, recommended practice in all of the madhahib. However, for a person who's dealing with that possible condition, it's, it, it could be good for them to verbalize the niyyah just to prevent that from arising in the prayer. So again, you do have cases where some people are susceptible to this kind of forgetfulness or uh, OCD tendencies where they begin to doubt themselves. And we always want to teach the basic fiqh so they're more educated about the parameters. Uh, but if there's a continuing problem, then we want to give them a view from within the school that frames their act in a way that renders it acceptable. Because just as you have differences between the four Sunni madhahib, you also have various differences within these madhahib. We just saw one today between whether the takbir to tahrima is a, a pillar or an obligation. That's a bit technical, but you have other differences within the school. So in this case, usually what we do is we look at that person's case and say, listen, it's perfectly acceptable for you to follow a secondary view that's also completely valid and sound according to the usul of the school, which is more lenient and will specifically help you in your case so that you're no longer dealing with whisperings and misgivings. And this is not picking and choosing because a person wants to find the easy way out and follow their desires or anything like that. It is to facilitate. This is the way of the fuqaha. This is the way of the fuqaha, those who are, who are really skilled in, in the science and the art of, of fiqh and, and fatwa and irshad. They lead people to rulings that keep them within the sharia, where their practices are valid, that are sound and, and, and accepted, insha'Allah ta'ala. Khair. Alhamdulillah.